So my guest for today's cappuccino is Miriam Chancellor. Miriam is a keynote speaker, a leading public speaking and presentation coach, and has been the past president of the Auckland Toastmasters. She's currently the director of Naked Audience, a public speaking and presentation coaching firm. So without further ado, it's my great pleasure to introduce Miriam Chancellor to the Cappuccino Podcast. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. It's a very big cure and welcome to Miriam Chancellor through the Cappuccino podcast. Thank you, Brian. It's great to be here. And now you hold the distinct honour of being the very first person ever to ask me what type of questions do you ask? So that gives you some <laughs> the preparation that Miriam does. So without further ado, it's time for the speed round. We do the speed round because Keanu Reeves is in speed. I love speed as a cop movie. He's also in Bill and Ted. He's John Wick. We can just keep going on and on and on. Uh, so the first question for you, Miriam, is this. What is the best movie line of all time, in your opinion? Oh. That's a tricky one, isn't it? That's a tricky one. Yeah. Uh, let me think. Can we come back to that? Because yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no worries. It's all good. Who do you think does, from what you've seen on the internet, mm. and there's been lots of it, and also television, um, who do you think has been doing the best COVID home presentation? Um, you know, you've got people like Jimmy Kimball and Stephen Colbert presenting from home. Who's been the best one that you've sort of looked at and gone, oh, he's pretty good? Yeah, good good question. Look, I I I'm a big supporter of following those in my own network and who I have who I have relationships with, and I'm going to give a little uh, shout out to uh, Rebecca Hollis, who who's a pretty well known figure in in New Zealand, and Rebecca's been obviously constrained to his home environment uh, in in the states and. But here he is with his home set up, still connecting, still interviewing Kiwis and seeing what they're up to. So uh, shout out to Rebet. I've really been enjoying his content over a lot. Nice. Time. I'm going to keep an eye out for that. What's a useless fact that you know that you can throw into a speech without hesitation and know that it's a confirmed fact without even thinking about it? People fear public speaking more okay. than death. Yeah, it's strange that. No, we'll come, we're going to uh, we're going to come to that shortly. Okay. Uh, when was the last time that you were left speechless? Oh, Brian, I'm never left speechless. Right. Uh, I, I think. I th- well, actually, your first question. There we there go. go. No, perfect. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> right. If you were to have an entrance song as a public speaker, uh, a la a boxer or a, a, a shall we say a world wrestling champion. What would Miriam Chancellor's theme song be as, as you walked out? Oh. My heart will go on. There you go. Celine that's, Dion. that's all good. And then heart the one that, tender. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And then the one my wife said, you can't ask her that. That's that's horrible. And I said, oh, I'm going do. to. Here we go. What well-known person does the most good in the world, you think? My mum. Ah, there you go. That's My great. Yeah, that is a great answer. Well done. And have you got that movie line or not? Or do we come back to it? 
Uh, let's park it. Let's come back to it. Look, I'm actually, I admit, I don't watch a whole lot of TV or movies, so that has thrown me a little bit, but I'm going to continue having it back in mind and we might reassess. That's all good. Okay. How's COVID going for you? Because uh, let's face it, you do presentation and um, speech coaching and public speaking, and there's not a huge market for that at the moment, apart from obviously Zoom sessions. So how's, how's everything been going for you during COVID? It's actually, look, it's actually been really uh, positive. I'm, I'm probably doing better than I would have anticipate, anticipated I would be. And I think part of that reason is, so I started Naked Audience uh, in February this year, which wasn't a great time to start a business, but then when is. Uh, and obviously COVID happened and at the beginning or towards the beginning of lockdown, I developed an online course to train people to effectively communicate over video conference. Mm -hmm. So that has kept me busy during this time. And it's also in many ways put me on the map uh, in terms of who I am and what I do and what I'm offering. Uh, but fortunately, actually things are picking up again as, as we are able to meet in person now. So I am actually reasonably busy with, with coaching clients in the flesh uh so yeah it's actually it's actually been a really positive experience and and been a good kickstart to what i'm doing yeah and it's just tested your resiliency as well and i'm guessing that naked audience is a tip of the hat to um always picture your audience as being naked when you speak to them bang on it's not something i actually advise people do but it's just a little fun playing words well, i do know and i do know somebody i won't mention their name a tv star who once told that to a 11-year-old boy who then came out and went to publicly speak and went a bright beat red, shade of red as he realised everybody in the audience was naked. So, uh, <laughs> Were you a very good speaker at school, Miriam? Yes, I was actually. It's probably not the answer you were looking for, but I, 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 I was. My mum put me into speech and drama at the age of six. And yeah. so my first performance, I still remember it, was the poem in front of a crowd of people, uh, and it was a competition. My mother said, I never should play with the gypsies in the wood. <laughs> and I don't actually mean to brag, but I did win that competition with that uh, performance. But yeah, look, at, at school, I was always the, the, the speech and drama and the music kid. And as you mentioned, I, I qualified for the uh, young performer of... Uh, the year award and look all credit and you mentioned it before around who's doing the most good in the world uh, certainly the person that's done a lot of good in my life is my mum she's supported me along uh, the way and got me into this from a from an early age and even to this day as well but just to tell you a funny story I remember while I was at school I was uh, heavily involved in, in various competitions uh, each year and I always knew quite early on that I couldn't look at my mum in the audience because she'd always be there because, of course, she knew my material uh, as well as I did. Yeah. And if I looked at her, she would be sitting on the edge of her seat and mouthing my words in sync <laughs> with me, which is obviously the most distracting thing. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so to answer your question, yeah, it's, it's always been something, something I've been involved in. That's awesome. Now, just so that your your ego remains checked, what's been your biggest cringe moment 
in public. I've got friends of mine who are TV presenters and they've said, look, I've swallowed a fly live. Um, I've done something <laughs> and that type of stuff. Um, what's been your biggest cringe moment? Sure. And look, everyone bombs. I think that's that's a good reminder that uh, even people like myself who consider myself, you know, I'm reasonably proficient at what I do, and but everyone has those moments. And I think for me, it was when I was starting out, I would memorize my speeches word for word. And that's risky for, for three reasons. Firstly, uh, it's time consuming. Secondly, you can appear quite stiff and inauthentic and mechanical when you speak because you're just repeating words. And it's risky because our memories learn sequentially. So if we get put off or thrown off uh, for whatever reason, it's very hard to get back on track. And that's exactly what happened. So I was in the middle of uh, a speech in, in Toastmasters uh, and I just had a utter mind blank and I, I bombed miserably. Uh, but the learning experience from that was that it is better to learn ideas and practice and rehearse ideas rather than memorize content word for word. Now, you're obviously a firm believer, as I am when I public speak and planning, um, and hence your pod podcast attempt with these questions. Um, how important <laughs> do you think it is uh, to a good presentation and public speaking that you have things planned? I mean, it takes a real skill to do it off the cuff, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think preparation is key. And, and something that I often say is confidence comes from competence and competence comes from preparation and knowing your stuff. Uh, but actually, even just on your note around impromptu speaking, you can still, in a way, be prepared for impromptu speaking. Because if you think about why people are so fearful, particularly of being called upon to speak without warning, so much of the horror behind that is actually the shock of getting called upon without any warning. So you can actually prepare yourself by expecting and anticipating to get called upon to speak. So when you go into work meetings, you know, ask yourself, okay, if I, if I were called upon to speak right now on what's being discussed, what would I say? Mm -hmm. How would I say it? How would I phrase it? How long would I want to speak for? And that in itself is a form of preparation because you're mentally preparing yourself to speak. So yeah. yes, preparation is, is incredibly important. And I think the best way you can, you know, the, the, the surest way of, of feeling good about what you're about to do and feeling confident in what you're doing is by being prepared. So as one of my old sergeants used to say, and you can feel free to use this, Piss poor planning equals piss poor performance. Um, so how do you explain somebody like my, one of my favourites, um, the late, great Robin Williams? Is that just an absolute f phenomenon in action or? Absolutely. And look, I think some, some people, generally speaking, I say anyone can become a public speaker, but I think that certain personalities uh, do gravitate towards being a speaker and, and do, do particularly well. Like humour. Some people, you know, take Robin Williams, are just innately 
funny and, mm-hmm. and that can be hard to teach. It's not impossible to teach, but it, no. it's something that just becomes, comes so naturally to that person. Do you still get nerves today before you, before you speak? And if you do, how do you get rid of them? I mean, I know of people who will, you know, they'll do the ring thing with their fingers and they'll clench their feet and everything else. Do, do you still get nervous? Mm, not really. And, oh, look, I, I still get, you know, the flutter of the stomach and the, the, the increased heart rate. But I've, through, as a result of doing this for so long, it, it does get easier. And that's actually a lesson for everyone. The more you do it, the easier it gets. But I've learned to reinterpret those sensations as excitement. Because actually, chemically, biologically, they're actually the same thing. So I, I reinterpret that as excitement. And generally speaking, I'm not a very nervous person. I don't tend to get very flustered easily. I mean, take my wedding day, for example. I remember being in the car en route to the, <laughs> the ceremony. And my dad was driving the car and I was in the back seat. And I had my little flower girl in the passenger seat. And she turns around and she says, aren't you nervous? And I said, oh, yeah, I suppose I should be. But I'm, I'm pretty chilled out. This is, this is great. So, I mean, generally speaking, I don't feel, feel nervous too much. But yeah. in a speaking context as well, I know that every time without failure, even if I have those, those symptoms, excitement feelings to start off with, once I get started, I just love it and I'm, I'm totally fine. Yeah. Which brings us on to something that we spoke about before. In all of those Reader's Digest surveys and the, the Time magazine surveys and everything else, you will see people's top 10 fears. And strangely enough, and I still can't figure it out myself now, death always comes in before public speaking, which normally ranks at number one or two. Why do you think it is that people would rather die before they speak publicly to somebody like yourself uh somebody like myself who's used to speaking in public i, I, I might be old-fashioned this way but i'd much rather speak in public than die i'm just that way but why do you think there's such a huge fear about it the popular fears if we just unpackage that slightly the popular fears behind public speaking and i when i say popular i mean common not favoured tend to be fear of vulnerability, fear of rejection, fear of looking stupid, fear of, you know, not being good enough. And all these fears are focused on consequences. You know, what if I muck up so badly that I'm fired? What if I look so stupid that no one wants to be my friend? Whereas death is very final. Mm-hmm. So we, we don't have to deal with the fact that we might have to, to be humiliated or ostracized as a result of our speech performance. We don't, you know, nothing happens after, after we die. We don't experience those sensations. Whereas obviously the fear of public speaking, it's centered around those consequences so that that's my interpretation of mm-hmm. that anyway someone else might might think differently do you think that people who don't publicly speak that they, they look 
Well, as we all do, we all set our goals incredibly high. Um, we look at people like Barack Obama, for instance, and if you look at something like his uh, amazing speech that he did on democracy for the Democratic Convention recently, people kind of forget that he was reading off a teleprompter and that there were probably, in brackets, take a pause or deep breath or something else like that. So there's a lot of, as as you know, stage direction going on there as well. Do you think that people actually forget that and they actually think, oh, he's an incredible, and he is an incredible orator, but do, do you think that people forget that there's also a lot going on behind the scenes with people like Barack Obama, for instance? Sure, and that's that's actually a really good point you've made there. And, and with the same could be said about Jacinda. In fact, I really, you, both Obama and Jacinda are, as you say, excellent communicators. But I don't doubt, you know, that they've had someone mm-hmm. write or at least help write their speech. Uh, as you say, that they've possibly got the teleprompts. They've they've got a bandwagon of advisors telling them what is appropriate for that context and whatnot. But I think I don't think it actually matters. It comes down to the fact that they are good communicators. And, you know, if we take Jacinda, for example, she, one of the greatest challenges I think people struggle with is the ability to communicate clearly and concisely. And both those individuals, Obama and uh, Jacinda, do do that. And yes, they've probably got those people around them telling them what they need to say, but, they, but they're still excellent communicators. And on top of that, you know, take, take Jacinda, she is, she's, takes a strong stance, she handles interruptions, those questions that are often challenging questions to answer. And she's a very empathetic communicator and she puts her audience first. Mm-hmm. And I think no teleprompt can help that. No. that. That's innate. That's who they are, and that that comes out in their style. Yeah. Okay. So for the average the average person listening to this who is afraid of giving speeches, um, what when you see um, speakers giving speeches, what are some of the most common mistakes that you see for people who might not be used to public speaking? What are what are some of the, the, the biggest sort of gaffes that you see? Oh, that's a really good question. I oh, I mentioned the, the first one, which would be uh, struggling to communicate clearly and concisely. I, mm-hmm. heard, <laughs> I heard the other day someone I was talking to uh, in the context of answering a question when he's in a work meeting or um, answering a question, he uses the he used the the cue of the facial expressions in front of him to indicate when he's provided a sufficient and until he gets that cue he just keeps talking and talking and talking and talking until he thinks they think he's given a sufficient response. And of course, half the population doesn't wear the emotions on their face. So, you know, you need to trust yourself and back yourself, identify when you've given the value, and this is, of course, in the context of answering the question, and get out of there. Don't feel the need to ramble on and repeat 
what you've already said or, or rehash what you've already said. Uh, so yes, cl communicating clearly and concisely would be one. Another one, uh, if we're talking specifically <laughs> around Kiwi communication, uh, we, as Kiwis, we have a tendency to raise our voice at the end of the sentence. And so it actually sounds like we're asking a question even if we're not. And it has yep. this effect of, uh, you know, it shows that perhaps, well, either it sounds like you're asking a question or it sounds like you're unsure about what you're saying. And it's particularly uh, present in, in females more than males, but men do it as well. Uh, so that's probably something that should generally be avoided because you want to sound like you know what you're saying and you're sure of yourself and you can back yourself. And by doing that, just finish the sentence at the same level or lower it at the end, unless, of course, you're asking a question. Another example would be vocal fry. Uh, any idea? Have you are you familiar with the concept of vocal fry, Brian? No, I no. haven't heard so vocal fry before. Let me explain. It's this yeah, that yeah, Kim oh. Kardashian. Uh, so yeah, like over the oh, weekend dear. we went to. So it's that crackling voice that, and I think it's because we have such a, you know, we consume so much American media mm -hmm. that it seems to have jumped borders, and now <laughs> a lot of again Kiwi women tend to tend to uh, adopt this vocal vocal fry which isn't bad in and of itself, but uh, for me personally, I would much rather listen to a voice that's not got some static interference going on in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the, the, off the top of my head, that would I'd, that's what I'd say are the, are the, the greatest uh, or common, common mistakes of, that people make. When you, when you hear somebody give a speech and obviously you're in the audience and they don't know who you are or what you do for a job or anything else, do you sit there and cringe sometimes and just go, Lord, could I help this person? Or, oh, my goodness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know that I, 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 I know that I've been at speeches where people are given out speeches and I'm like, oh, this is dreadful. It's not like it's not like it's a, <laughs> not like it's not a good effort, but it's it's with a little bit of polishing, they could have done so much better. Do you sit there and think that, or do you just sort of go, oh, well, this is a learning curve? Oh, sure. Look, I'm not, I'm not a meanie. I don't, I don't pass judgment. We're all on a journey, and I think, yeah. I, actually, you know what would be the, the prominent thought? It would be good on them for getting up there and doing it, because that's mm. so hard, and so many people try, go out of their way to avoid their situations and actually, I commend them, commend them for doing it. But sure, I mean, I, I guess you could say that I am hypersensitive to the way people communicate, and mm. naturally, like anyone else would be in their area of expertise, you, you know, you're aware of what they're doing and how you might do that differently. But I wouldn't say I would, I wouldn't cringe. I, I'd think good on them for for doing so. Yeah, especially when you look at people like uh, King George the Sixth or Joe Biden, for obvious, obvious reasons, tremendous stutterers, and how well they publicly mm. speak now. So yeah, I guess so. Um, changing tact a little bit, do you think that the mm. art of one person presenting and speech writing is now over? And when I say that, I'm talking people like Martin Luther King, uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, Winston Churchill. Do you think that era is over? Because now 
all the politicians and even the celebrities, as we've said before, have teams of speechwriters and image consultants and delivery coaches and that type of thing. Do you think that day, those days are over? Or does Miriam Chancellor still compose her speeches in the bath like Winston did? Well, exactly. I was just thinking of that. Yes and no. I think we adapt naturally to the time we're in. Uh, naturally, there are less occasions to deliver, uh, you know, public presentations and speeches in a real person, in-person context. Mm -hmm. uh, and, of course, politicians still have to do that, so it's still a very big reality for them. But I wonder if part of it is that everyone has their own micro-audiences these days. So it's a different form of performing. We've now got YouTubers uh, delivering some, you know, a form of, of speech or presentation to their mm. followers. You've got people on social media, on Instagram stories, taking selfie videos of themselves. They're still delivering to an audience. So I think it's just, it's taken a shift. What I would say, what hasn't changed is the importance of communication and being able to speak in front of a group. I mean, take for instance, Warren Buffett. I mean, he was absolutely petrified of public speaking. And to the extent that he would actually get physically ill, he would, he would throw up before speaking to a group. So he signed up to the Dale Carnegie uh, uh, public speaking course. And of course, before it actually started, he pulled out because he was just too petrified of, of going through with it. So it came around again and he paid it in advance. So he had a financial commitment with this course and he saw it through. And now he's a, a capable speaker and obviously a, a, a well-known figure. And he says, and I don't think, you know, this has changed from, from his generation to the next, that if you can learn to speak well in front of a group, if you can invest time and resources into public speaking training, you will increase your value by 50%. Mm. And this is what I say to people that, you know, are preparing, take, for instance, a pitch environment. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's, it's all very well to have a great product and great service, but if you can't communicate that in a pitched environment, you're not going to bring in any money through the door. So, yeah, absolutely, the, the landscape has changed, but the importance of communication has not. Okay. So, as my old English teacher would say, words are important because words are what define you. Um, so, my question for you now is, if Miriam happened to be walking past me and I went, Hey, that's that girl from Naked Audience. Uh, and I'm just going to ask you one quick question. Who's somebody I should look at in the modern era and go, that's the type of person or the type of present presenter slash public speaker I want to be or I should try and model myself on? Who would you say is the cream of the crop, so to speak? I think we've touched on it, Brian. I think Obama and Jacinda are excellent communicators that we can learn from and observe. However, just on a note on that, I think it's important, and I first learned this concept in the context of writing, but I think it also applies in the context of developing your own public speaking skills and style. When you're starting off, yes, observe other experts in this area, 
but don't try and mimic them. Don't try and adopt a particular style because it will have an effect of coming across quite artificial or it just won't be authentic. You'll find that as you naturally just, just focus on communicating clearly and effectively, your natural style will just emerge over time and it will develop organically. So yes, observe the expert communicators. You can, there's things we can learn from them, but don't mm -hmm. try and mimic them. Everyone's different. So everyone's going to have a different uh, take on, even a different take on the same message. So don't try and be like someone else. Don't try and be Robin Williams. Don't try and be Jacinda. Just focus on communicating clearly and concisely and your natural style will, will emerge. Which, uh, even in jest, I mean, and I say this, doing this like Donald Trump does, uh, with this little <laughs> hand signal, and I've seen people start to do that when they're doing videos now, and I'm sure that they're unaware that they're actually doing it because they've just seen it so many times. So speaking of President Donald J. Trump, um, I watched a uh, uh, presentation that you did, only a very brief one, on when people start, they, they lose lose their points, they lose actually what they're, what that we're wanting to speak about and they start to waffle and they go off track and everything else. So I am now going to sort of transport us both to America, Miriam, and I'm going to mm. make you Donald J. Trump's presentation and speech advisor. Yes. Yeah. Apart from the obvious one, um, what, would, what advice, what sort of three or four points would you give him uh, to get a little bit better at the podium? And don't use Twitter as not, not one, all right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, it would probably be a piece of advice I'd give, give generally, and perhaps it's particularly appropriate in, in his context. Uh, your audience comes first. What I mean by that, so what I get a lot of the people I, I work with to do before they even start a particular presentation or keynote speech. I get them to answer a few questions like, what is the purpose of this presentation? Uh, what are your audience's existing beliefs on the subject that you're gonna be speaking on? What are your time constraints? What do you want them, the audience to take away from your presentation? Uh, and, and that purpose and takeaway are particularly important and what happens when you do this and when you can answer these questions is that you're putting the audience's needs ahead of your own. And that will come out naturally in the communication, uh, in, in the delivery and in the content of, of what you're saying. So here's a very polarizing character and obviously there are many people uh, I'll refrain from <laughs> expressing my own views, but yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that 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 find him uh, a difficult person and, and that don't resonate with his communication style. And I think if he were to adopt that audience first, audience centered approach, along with various other things, he would be able to uh, better connect with uh, the people he's speaking to, rather than putting his own needs uh, ahead of ahead of uh, the the people because at the end of the day it's all about 
the people who've done it. You know, it's we're, we're there to deliver a message. We're there to deliver an insight. And when you put those people first, uh, you're more likely going to be successful in that uh, communication, that transmitting of that message. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not wrong. Um, now, obviously, public speaking has changed in the last six months. We have gone from lots of what you and I are doing at the moment, where we're doing Zoom meetings uh, and moving probably a little bit further away from the office or the conference room or the auditorium. Um, you, like I, probably have seen some terrible gaffes on Zoom, incorrect framing when people are doing Zoom interviews, uh, bad microphones and the such like. Um, and I'll take a screen picture later on um, of you and yours, but you're perfect because you're in the middle of the frame. You've got a good background behind you. You're not wearing the same colour as the background, that type of stuff. Um, <laughs> and those are just some of the things I've seen. Um, what sort of small tips would you give to people if they are making not a Zoom uh, call like this where obviously all we're doing is just using the audio, but if they're actually doing a pitch or a presentation, what sort of three or four bits of advice that you would give the novice to Zoom? Okay, all I was going to say is, as I mentioned towards the beginning, I developed this uh, course, this workshop that I currently deliver live on effective video conference communication. I've now created a written resource that encapsulates the core areas of that workshop. And I've now also recorded myself delivering the workshop to them so that I won't have to deliver it live each time I each time someone's after it. Anyway, I was going to say, if, if people are interested, then I'm more than happy to talk about delivering that workshop. I've delivered it to a publicist group in Australia, Coca-Cola, various other uh, organizations, both here in New Zealand and in Australia. But if I were to cut to the chase and say what were the core areas that people should bear in mind, uh, apart from the obvious getting the right lighting and angling appropriately because we don't want to see up your nose, I'd say an interesting one that people don't think about is opting. It's very you know, we understand that interrupting in person should generally be avoided, but it's even worse over VC because due to the transmission delay of these platforms, interrupting can often lead to double talk, which is that awkward situation of, and I'm going to try and do it here. Uh, so before we close, shall we? Oh, I was just going to, oh, wait, can you, oh, sorry, you go, I mean, we've all experienced it, right? Mm-hmm. So interrupting over VC will often signal to the speaker uh, that you're trying to butt in. And it's just, it's just a very complicated uh, process. For the same reason, audible sounds of agreement, like, mm-hmm, yeah, that we normally do in a face-to-face context to indicate that we're listening and agreeing with what's being said, those should also be avoided because the speaker may think you're trying to, to interrupt. So if you do want to signal that you are listening over VC, then nodding, just as you're doing now, does, does the trick. It's, it's much more seamless and less complicated than, than interrupting. Uh, another point, if I were to add another point, would be who setting the expectations at the beginning of the meeting. If you're the host of the meeting, people want you 
to facilitate and call the shots. So some things you could consider outlining at the beginning of a meeting, and of course it does depend on the nature of the meeting and what's at stake, but you could consider outlining the purpose, why are you here, what's the meeting objective, what do you want to get out of the session. Uh, secondly, input. What will you want to hear from those in the meeting or is the meeting purely informative? And then the last point you might want to consider is why me? So we've all been to meetings that we're left wondering, oh, why have I been included to this? So, so tell them why they've been included. And by outlining those, those three things at the outset, you're going to bring everyone together, you're going to line everyone, and the focus is going to increase and the engagement is going to increase. Uh, so there are, there are a whole lot of other, other things, but I'd say primarily, yes, get your, your visible setup right, but also don't interrupt, be an attentive listener, and finally set the expectations at the beginning of a meeting. Perfect. And attend one of your courses if you can. That's the, uh, that's the one. Hey, uh, the other thing I'd like to ask you is, do you think that Zoom meetings are now going to become the new norm for um, businesses and presentations and the such like? Maybe we won't have the um, big overseas travel, you know, where people used to go to conferences um, in Australia, for instance, or the such like. Do you think the days of things like TED Talks might be actually uh, numbered? Do you think that we'll start seeing things like TED Talks being done in this sort of virtual environment instead? I can only comment based on what I've observed and what I've experienced. So some, some comments there. At the end of lockdown, I thought, okay, this workshop that I've developed is going to you know, run its course. I'm not going to be delivering it anymore. But actually, as companies are realising that employees can work effectively from home, we're now seeing an adoption of a hybrid model where for some of the week they're working from home, some of the week they're working in the office. So yes, these technologies are here to stay, but they will never replace face-to-face -face communication. We all know that. Nothing beats the interpersonal interaction. In terms of an industry, uh, at an industry level, uh, I've heard from uh, people that I've, I've been in touch with who work in sales, that it's been a lifesaver in many ways because there was just this expectation to travel to meetings, three hours plus. But now it's, it's leveled the playing field. It's now normal. There's now an expect, almost expectation as a first port of call. Well, can we do this over Zoom? If, if yes, then great. If not, okay, now we'll meet a person. Uh, whereas before, I think if someone suggested, "Oh, why don't we just have this meeting online?" <gasps> what do you not want? What are you not bothered to come and see me? No, it's completely shifted. The, the dynamic is completely shifted. So to answer your question, I think these technologies are here to stay, but I think uh, nothing will replace face-to-face -face communication. But I think we will, over time, see shifts in uh, particular particular industries, particular professions, uh, some more than others. Uh, something as a, as a point of interest, something that I'm doing at the moment is a lot of work in the health sector because, of course, telehealth 
is now taking off. I mean, that's fantastic that people don't have to travel miles out of the town to see a specialist because they can jump online and get, you know, X percentage value from uh, an online visit as if they were there in person. Yes, there are certain constraints with that, but uh, I heard this podcast recently on Freakonomics uh, on, on Tally Health and one of the interviewees was a professor, uh, a doctor at the University of Michigan, I think it was. And he says that he predicts by the year 2025, 25% of medical visits will be conducted over Zoom. And I think that's great because that's really an enabler. So yeah, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for sure. Uh, now this could be the toughest question of the entire podcast. Here it comes. So I'm going to give you your bag of communication skills, so to speak. Uh, and I'm going to say to you, Miriam, you're only allowed to draw three things out from your bag to make you an effective communicator. What three things would they be? Oh, that is so hard. See, now you see why I couldn't give you the questions in advance. But nice try, yeah. No, no, that's good. That's good. This yeah. is getting me... Oh, let's go with instinctive response. Okay. First, I would say clarity of thought is important. Clarity of thought. Uh, confidence and charisma. I'm going to say that's going to be one because uh, they kind of go together. And storytelling. I think we're, being humans, we're suckers for stories. I mean, if you think back to hieroglyphics, you've got the Bible, you've got folk tales, and even now in modern society, Advertising is simply selling us the narrative. Mm. So, yes, storytelling is important. Having confidence and charisma. And what was the first one you said? Oh, clarity of thought. Those would be my, my three things. Perfect. Look at that. Um, often you hear um, take small bites from, of, the, of the apple or the pie or the such like when you're starting new skills. And the same is true with public speaking um, from what I've read and what I've, I've heard. Where's the ideal place for a beginner to take those small steps into public speaking. I'm lucky because I had the advantage of being a police officer. I get to speak to lots of community groups and I'm gonna, not gonna say fine tune my skills because I don't think I'm that skilled, but I get to tune some of them. Um, not everybody mm. gets that opportunity. So where's the best place for the, the average punter to start? Well, it depends on what stage of life they are. If I were talking to, let's assume they're a, a, a a young child or a child and look I'm going to be careful what I say here because I can't give parenting advice when I'm not a parent yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. but I'd say look I can only speak from my own experience put them through speech and drama it'll be the best thing you do for your child uh, that will give them the the a good a good start to, to building those communication skills and building that confidence uh, as an adult I think you can't really go wrong with with Toastmasters which uh, is something I'm still heavily involved in and uh, which is, I know, has been a life changer, a game changer for, for many people. Uh, just to give people an insight if they don't know what Toastmasters is all about, Toastmasters is an international organisation uh, based around public speaking and leadership skills. And there are clubs all over the world and as a member, you belong to a particular club and then within that club you're following 
your own pathway and pathway is the, the lingo that they, they use. So that pathway might be presentation mastery. It might be communicating with humor. It might be motivational speaking. It might be uh, persuasive speech. And in a given meeting, everyone is assigned a role, some kind of speaking role. And those roles change from meeting to meeting. So one in one meeting, you might be giving a prepared speech. In another meeting, you might be an evaluator. And in another meeting, you might be the chairman who's running the meeting or whatever. The benefit of Toastmasters is that everyone gets evaluated. Even the evaluators get evaluated. So you're getting that immediate feedback on your performance. And because everyone's there for the same reason, which, which is to improve their public speaking skills, there's this atmosphere of support. So unlike what might occur in a, in a work context, if you're given a, a piece of a, a critique or a recommendation in Toastmasters, it's always taken well because you know that the person imparting that criticism or advice has got your best interests at heart and you're just there to support and help build up one another. And everyone, as I said earlier, everyone's on a journey. Everyone's at a different level. Another benefit of Toastmasters is that you get that regular practice. So it's all very well getting up and delivering a presentation at work once in a blue moon, but you're not going to improve that way. But by turning up meeting after meeting in our club meets uh, fortnightly, you're getting that regular practice to test content on, uh, different, on, on the audience, to trial certain different styles or different approaches to crafting a speech. And it's that regular practice, regular exposure that helps build the confidence over time and in many ways unpackage uh, the fear that a lot of people are, are faced with. So yes, Toastmasters is a, is a great starting point. So if anyone's interested to, to join a club, I would, I would highly recommend doing so. And it's fair to say, and I've spoken to some people, I've said to them, they've said to me, how do I get better at public speaking? And I say, look, I've got a few friends of mine who do Toastmasters, that's something you might want to look in. And they've gone, oh, I don't want to do, I don't want to go in there on the first night and have to do an impromptu speech on a titanium wrench. Um, that's not going to happen, <laughs> is it? No, that's a, that's a good point. In fact, that's one thing I say to the guests that turn up. I say, look, you're, if you're here as a guest, first of all, there's, you're, not, you're not compelled to to participate, you're just there as an observer. And as a member, a new member's first project tends to be their opening, their first speech, which is an icebreaker, which is just to outline a bit about who you are and and get the, yeah, share, share information on, on who you are and introduce yourself, yourself to the club in, in the form of a speech. Uh, they might be, called upon to give an impromptu speech, but, but bear in mind that there's a, only a small portion of a meeting devoted to impromptu speaking or table topics as, as we call them. And those table topics are only one minute long. I admit they are hard to start yeah. off with. I remember when I first joined Auckland Toastmasters and I, the table topics master, who is the one that assigns the topics to particular members, got up and 
I got given my first one and you have no preparation time whatsoever and you're just expected to stand where you are and go and speak. And my heart was just pounding and, and that, that is harder. That is harder, of course. Uh, but again, as I said, from my experience, once I got into it, I was fine. And it's, it's really the best way to learn is, is in many ways just being thrown out of the, thrown in the deep end and just figuring out what works and what doesn't. And you learn those strategies as you progress. Toastmasters is great for uh, particular frameworks on how to go about managing those situations. I mean, we had a we had a um, uh, experienced Toastmaster get up and deliver the other week a seven to eight minute impromptu speech, and to be fair, he was <laughs> he was the ex uh, past international president of Toastmasters. So he he'd been top president in America at the top. Uh, so he was very experienced, but it also why he did so well in it also came down to the steps he took to navigate the situation. And that's the type of thing that you learn in Toastmasters. The experience comes with time, but very quickly you learn the actual steps, frameworks and tools to help you manage those situations. Hmm. Two more questions for you, Miriam. And you know what the last one's going to be? It's going to be, what's your favourite movie line? The second to last one is this. Your big day has come, and I know that you've listened to the podcast, so you know what's coming, and it's mm. the day of your eulogy. What do you hope that they'll say about Miriam Chancellor in your eulogy? I mean, I'm sure that they will be, and you have the innate ability to actually be hearing what's going on. I'm sure they won't waffle because they'll know that you'll be listening and going, just get to the point. So what, what do you hope they'll say? I love that question. In fact, I was listening to Tim Ferriss, the podcast of Tim Ferriss interview, uh, Tony Robbins recently. And I think the question that was asked was similar to that, but it was phrased in a way, what do you have to do now to ensure that you're remembered in 300 years time? And I think for, for any person, there's, there's going to be a desire to have done something or achieve something bigger than ourselves. So for me, I guess that's going to look like the people I helped the, that overcome the challenges of public speaking, presumably talking in, in my area of expertise. Yeah, I guess is to, 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 to touch, to, to help, countless people overcome those challenges so that they can actually stop living a life or a career of, of fear and uh, apprehension when it came to, to public speaking situations. Uh, I also, uh, and at the end of the day, I hope I'll just be recognised as, as being a good person. I don't think at the end of the day, work is work, but it's all about our relationships and the impact we make on the lives around us that is really going to be long lasting. And I think I read a quote recently, people don't remember what you do or what you did. They'll remember how you made them feel. Mm. Uh, so food for thought. 
that old little stick. Have you got that favourite movie line for me yet or not? <laughs> I don't because our conversation has been so riveting. But look, I'm wondering if you'll give me permission to reinterpret the question and say, what movie do I think everyone should watch? Go. Can I, do I have that permission? Great. You are more than welcome. Rear Window, Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, there we go. That's a goodie. It's, it's a goodie. And the funny thing is, uh, it was actually when my husband heard that I loved Alfred Hitchcock films when we were dating. That pretty much sealed the deal uh, <laughs> in his mind that it was meant to be. <laughs> I just hope he doesn't get nervous when he takes a shower. That's all I'm saying. Uh, and on that <laughs> note, where do we go? If we want to follow you or make an audience, where do we go to follow you on social media? So do you have a Facebook page? I not present on Facebook, but I'm very much active on LinkedIn. So please add me, Miriam Chancellor. I'd love to connect with you. You can also follow Naked Audience on LinkedIn as well. I've also just started a Naked Audience Instagram. So it's just the handle is just Naked Audience. So yeah, would love to would love to connect with you, and would really appreciate the the support by way of a follow. So do what I'm doing, which is following Miriam on all those platforms and Naked Audience. Um, thank you, ma'am. It's been an absolute blast. Uh, lots and lots of fun. And it just goes to show to you that you can meet some very interesting people on social media, especially when they reach out and say, hi, how are you? Um, I'll leave you with this parting thought. There is nothing more brutal for a good speech presentation than being in front of primary school children. And I might actually get you to come out with me one day. Miriam, yeah. and have a, have a chat at primary schools because Great. Our, the best piece of feedback I ever got was, oh, you're a lot funnier on TV than you are in real life. Oh, no. <laughs> oh good on you, Brian. Look, and I want to acknowledge you as well because I think you're doing a marvellous thing with this podcast and you've got everything going from, for you and I just completely admire particularly your creative questions. I think they're absolutely brilliant. I don't know how you think of them or whether you have some muse that, that helps you think of these questions, but they're just excellent. You're Thanks, man. No, it's just, just the three most important people in my life, me, myself, and I. Cappuccino with Constable Brian. Real people, real stories. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss his next podcast.